This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So uh, we're going to talk about something I think is really important today, uh, which is neuroscience and the human person. Are neuroscience and the soul compatible? So uh, just the outline, just so you know where I'm going, because if I don't give you an outline, you're going to wonder where I'm going with this stuff. So we're going to introduce the concept of localization in clinical neuroscience. We're going to talk about the development of localization throughout history. We're going to ask, does everything essentially human localize to the brain? We're going to discuss correlations between mental states and brain states. We're going to ask, is the mind identical to the brain? Are they one thing? Or does the brain generate the mind? Or are the body and mind two separate substances interacting? Or maybe there's a different way we should be thinking about this, which is going to lead us into talking about Aristotelian and Thomistic metaphysics, just briefly and then some concluding remarks on the human person from the standpoint of a physician. Okay. So this is the human brain. Uh, that's a real picture of a human brain. Has anyone ever touched one of these before? Have you ever anyone held uh, one of these or no? Okay. All right, well, it's a really impressive structure. It doesn't look all that impressive just looking at it, but it's one of the most complex things in the universe, I'd say has 86 billion neurons. And there's uh, at least an equal number of what are called glial cells or support cells, perhaps even four times as many. Uh, it's about three pounds. And uh, when you feel it with your hands, it, it has the texture of a mushroom, kind of, you know, kind of moist. And um, it doesn't, again, it doesn't look that impressive, but when you get into it and study it, it certainly is impressive. Uh, I really fell in love with this, uh, the brain when I was in uh, medical school, didn't know what I wanted to do, but once we got into the neuroscience curriculum, uh, I really fell in love with studying this uh, particular organ. I got a job over the summer doing what's called CNS dissection, so we'd get cadavers, uh, which, is a, which is when someone donates their body to science after they uh, pass away. And uh, I spent a whole summer just slicing human, uh, human brains and uh, looking at them and studying them and uh, teaching other people about them, tutoring, uh, and just really fell in love with it. And now I'm a neurologist. And as a neurologist, we do something called localization. And this is the process of locating the site of damage within the nervous system. So if someone has a stroke or some type of neurological ailment, and we're able to examine the person and figure out where that is, where it's located. And this requires the mastery of the neurological examination extensive knowledge of neuroanatomy and physiology, and knowledge of thousands of different disease states. Uh, neurologists, when we do our exam, we can also localize normal function throughout the, throughout the neuroaxis, as we call it. Okay. Uh, the brain has not always been considered an important organ. So if you look back through antiquity, the uh, ancient Egy Egyptians would... Uh, take all the organs out. So like a pharaoh died or someone important died, they'd take the organs out and they'd wrap them up and they'd preserve them. They'd put them back into the pharaoh, uh, but not so with the brain. So they would get a, a hook and they'd put it through the ethmoid bone, through the nose, and they'd just scrape out the brain and throw it away. They just thought it was a useless kind of glob of fat. Uh, when you go back to the ancient Greeks, there was this debate between what's called encephalocentrism. So that our cognitive faculties localize in the brain. And then there was something called cardiocentrism, that our cognitive faculties, the will and things like that, localize to the heart. Uh, examples would be Aristotle was a cardiocentrist, so he thought that the, a lot of our mental faculties localized to the heart and that the brain was an organ for cooling the blood, which to his credit is actually true. It, it doesn't just do that, but it does cool the uh, blood. The, the hypothalamus is kind of like the thermostat for the body, so... Uh, it does do that. And then you have encephalocentrists like uh, Hippocrates. Okay. All right, so if you move forward through history, we get to uh, Galen of Pergamon. And he was a physician to gladiators. So uh, what he would do is, so, you know, they'd be, uh, you know, fighting each other and someone would sustain a blow to the brain. 
Uh, he also uh, observed many soldiers. So he would kind of send his minions out there and uh, they would make notes and, and examine these folks. And one of the things that uh, Galen realized was that if someone was struck in the head and, and they sustained damage to the, to the brain, the closer that damage was to the ventricular system, which are some fluid-filled uh, compartments in the center of our brain that makes cerebral spinal fluid, the closer the damage was to that area, the more impaired their cognition was. So he came up with what was called the ventricular doctrine, which stated that our cognitive faculties localized to the ventricles. And this held for over a thousand years until about the time of Descartes, who put a lot of emphasis on the uh, pineal gland. Uh, and that's the area where the kind of the soul and the body interact. We now know that that uh, produces melatonin. and has uh, much to do with circadian rhythm. Uh, perhaps one of the uh, most fun theories of all time was phrenology. And if you've taken like an intro to psychology class, you've probably learned about phrenology. But this was uh, first thought of by Franz Gall. And uh, he would notice when he was like, even when he was a kid, he'd sit in class and kind of realize like people have all these different size shaped heads. And, and he thought maybe there's a correlation between their uh, personalities and such with, with the shape of their head, right? Um, and he developed phrenology. So this is the idea that cognitive faculties localized to the cortex, to the cortex. That sounds like pretty reasonable, right? But then the cortex exerts a pressure on the skull and it, it uh, helps, it, it shapes the skull uh, so that you can actually map out the skull and take different measurements. And you can um, make all sorts of psychological and physiological assessments based off of these areas. So you might like measure back here along the occipital ridge and maybe that area is really large. So you'd conclude that this person has a lot of sexual desire or you go right behind the mastoid process and that area is fairly large. And uh, so they're very combative and they have a <laughs> propensity towards murder perhaps, right? So uh, this was uh, pretty wild stuff. There was actually something like 26 journals dedicated to this and most of them were peer reviewed. Or, or a lot of them are peer-reviewed. So um, there's no phrenologists anymore, um, which uh, is too bad. It would, I think it would be a lot of fun, right? So, all right. All right. Uh, sorry if pictures of the brain make you queasy. Um, so localization really takes off in the 19th century and in the 20th century. So for much of history, it was considered unethical to do post-mortem analysis. So, um, but then this became more acceptable with time. So in the 19th century, you would have these neurologists. So Pierre Paul Broca is a very famous neurologist. So he would uh, follow someone. So someone developed uh, what's called expressive aphasia. So right now I'm using what's called Broca's area, okay? And I, as I'm talking to you, and that's in my left inferior frontal gyrus. So I'm using that area as I communicate to you. But there was someone that had a stroke in that region, and he followed this person for a number of years. And then when the person died, he did an autopsy, and he said, okay, what part of the brain is gonna be affected? And it was the inferior frontal lobe. We call that now Broca's area, okay? So he said expressive language localizes to the inferior frontal lobe on the left side, okay? A contemporary of him, uh, Colonel Warnicke, uh, localized receptive language. So as you're listening to me right now, you're receiving input. You're using um, Wernicke's area, which is in the superior temporal lobe on the left. And those two things are connected by the arcuate fasciculus. Okay. So then John Hewlings Jackson, who's the father of epilepsy, studied folks who had seizures. And if you look um, right here, so let me see. So you look here. You've got this um, body that's over the uh, precentral gyrus in the frontal lobe, the motor, motor cortex. So he realized that people would have seizures. And when they would have seizures, sometimes their face would start twitching first. And then all of a sudden there would be rhythmic movements in the hand, and then in the arm, and then in the torso, and then in the leg. That's called the Jacksonian march after um, John Hewlings Jackson. So he thought that the brain kind of mapped out the body. So, of course, uh, he studied a lot of people with syphilis who developed epilepsy from injuries to the brain. 
And after they died, you'd take the skull off and you'd look. And sure enough, in the motor cortex, you know, he could map the whole thing out. So motor function was localized to the brain. Same thing for sensory function as well. You get to the 20th century, uh, Father Anselm talked a little bit about this, but Wilder Penfield, who's a famous uh, neurosurgeon, so he was one of the pioneers in a, in a surgery that's done now. In fact, we, I sent someone for this surgery last this week, actually. So a uh, person who I saw this week who has a brain tumor, and that brain tumor needs to be both biopsied and resected. So um, what you do is you do a craniotomy, you take off part of the skull, and you want to remove this tumor, okay? But you don't want to take out any delicate cortex with it. So you stimulate areas in the brain to see if that's delicate cortex. So you stimulate uh, the area on the homunculus of the arm and the arm moves, or in the sensory uh, post-central gyrus, you stimulate an area and you feel sensation. So he was able to very precisely map out the motor cortex, the sensory cortex. And then when he went into the lateral temporal lobe, he would stimulate certain areas in the lateral temporal lobe and people would have flashbacks or memories. So that memory uh, localizes to the brain as well. Uh, you guys probably know this too. So this is uh, Phineas Gage. He's, he's pretty famous, right? So uh, Phineas Gage in, uh, I think it was 1848. So he's a rail railroad worker in Vermont. And what you would do to like get big boulders out of the way is you'd pack explosives into sand with an iron rod. So you get this iron rod and you just start kind of jamming the ground. What probably happened was he's uh, a rock. He probably hit a, a, a small rock and a spark came out and ignited the dynamite. And this iron rod uh, went flying through his eye socket and out the left uh, side of his frontal bone and through his frontal lobe. Okay. And it landed 30 yards behind him. And uh, he, he actually may have even maintained consciousness during this, but he didn't die. He lived for another 11 or 12 years or something like that. Uh, but what was noticed, and this is grossly exaggerated, um, but that he had changes in personality. So he used to be like a fairly relaxed and, and um, uh, he used to be a fairly relaxed uh, person, kind of calm and collective, but then he had these major turn, uh, changes in uh, personality. He actually had quite a bit of recovery and, and actually did fairly well. He, he died of status epilepticus from seizure disorder from the damage to his brain. Okay. Uh, this is electroencephalography. So I spend a lot of my day uh, reading these studies. It's, uh, the electrical activity of the brain this helps localize things. Uh, here we have some more neuroimaging. So this is CT scan. So electroencephalography, which I uh, in the last slide was invented by Hans Berger in 1924, came into use more so in the 50s. Uh, these are uh, CT scans. So it came out, uh, became in clinical practice in the 70s, and this helps localize things. So CT scan up above, and then down at the bottom, that's a CT angiogram looking at blood vessels. This is uh, magnetic resonance imaging, an MRI. This is a, a really incredible technology that uses magnetic fields and radio frequencies and their effect on water molecules to uh, display these beautiful images of the brain. So I used to do these, you know, work with the cadavers and slice up these things, but having an MRI, it's, it's like it's in your hand. The, the pictures are so accurate, they're wonderful. And we're able to really localize things in the brain. Very helpful. Uh, so I teach at a medical school, so I always give uh, cases to students to try to figure out what's going on. And uh, to illustrate a point, I'll do this. But So a 73-year-old man presents to the emergency department with acute onset right-sided paralysis. So he's uh, weak on the right or paralyzed on the right. So immediately I know that's the left side of the brain. He has gaze fixation to the left. So um, yeah, so there's damage to the frontal lobe. Okay. An inability to speak or follow commands. So I know that Broca's area is involved and Wernicke's area is involved. And I would ask the student here, where is the lesion? Where is the site of the damage? And uh, I'd say, is it in the cortex? Is it in the subcortex? Is it in the brainstem? Is it in the spinal cord? Is it in the nerve roots? Is it in the plexus? Is it in the peripheral nerves? Is it in the neuromuscular junction? Is it in the muscle? If so, what side? So we'll try to go through this. And by the end of the rotation, uh, they'll usually be able to get these things fairly quickly, but a neurologist can walk into the room and just look at the person, know immediately 
most times, you know, if you do this for long enough, you can just look at the person and know, okay, this is going to be, um, you know, left uh, MCA territory, left middle cerebral uh, artery territory. And sure enough, it is. So someone comes into the emergency department with this. And uh, we get a CT scan, which is an image A, and it's pretty normal. I don't see a whole lot of abnormalities here. And then we get a, um, an angiogram, a CT angiogram. And we look, and there's an occlusion of this blood vessel right here. This is the left middle uh, cerebral artery. We get these beautiful pictures here, which show the blood flow to the brain. If you look at this blue area right here, there's low blood flow in this area, and this is area of the brain that's dead. When we look over at C, this area here in red is the area that's going to die if we don't intervene. So we intervene. So we put a catheter in the groin, we go up to the carotid artery, we get into the brain, and we suck out the clot. And that's in D. And then in E, you see the blood vessels are back, right? We took the clot out, now blood flow is restored. We follow up with an MRI, and we get this wonderful, uh, you know, all this part of the brain is preserved. This bright area, though, uh, is a stroke, but this person's going to have a much better outcome now, okay? And I would argue this is neuroscience. This is like neuroscience at its finest, I think. So we're using all these technologies and all these discoveries that people have made over all this time. We're putting it into practical use, and um, this uh, makes a tremendous difference in the lives of people. If anyone's like considering neuroscience, you know, it's a wonderful thing uh, to do, in my opinion. Okay, so then we get to functional MRIs. Uh, these have very little clinical utility, um, especially in with what I do. It's more used in cognitive neuroscience, but we do use it in folks with epilepsy. So as I'm talking right now, remember I said Broca's area on the left side? Uh, I'm using Broca's area right now as I'm talking to you. So as I'm talking to you, that area is going to require uh, more blood flow because it needs more glucose because it's active. So these studies measure blood flow to the brain. And the areas that are being used the most are going to have the most blood flow. And um, so you'll see these areas light up. And this is good because when we're planning to do epilepsy surgery, uh, we want to make sure we don't cut out anything delicate. And we want to localize his language on the left side or the right side or his memory on the right side or the left side. And that helps with planning surgery. And it avoids something called the WADA procedure, which um, is where you put a catheter in the groin, you bring it up to the carotid artery, and you inject a um, barbiturate into the brain. It makes half the brain asleep and half the brain awake, which is a very awkward feeling. Okay, uh, So we'd have to do that before to localize uh, things and make sure we're not cutting out precious tissue. But the functional MRI serves a purpose here. It can be very helpful, and it's fairly accurate. Okay. So in the 19th century, motor and sensory function was discovered to reside within specific locations of the brain. Expressive and receptive language was localized to specific regions within the frontal and temporal lobes. Personality was localized to brain regions within the frontal lobe. In the 20th century, memory was localized to regions within the temporal lobe. Okay, you can add to this visual uh, so if you go back to like World War I, uh, Gordon Holmes would do all these studies on people who got gunshot wounds to the occipital lobe, and uh, they didn't die from them. They were lower velocity. Uh, so he would study, and he, got this, he made this wonderful map just on clinical observation of the visual cortex in the occipital lobe, and that was in the 20th century. You jump to the 21st century, we have advanced forms of imaging, functional MRIs, which have localized mental states um, to brain regions. So mental states are things like sensation. So I put my hand on a, on a hot stove. Uh, I get the sensation of, of uh, pain from doing that. Uh, emotions, uh, you know, you're happy or sad about something. Uh, thoughts, beliefs, desires, acts of the will, those would be what we consider mental states. And then, uh, so you can put people in like a functional MRI and you can like poke them with a pin or something. And, uh, certain areas of the brain will light up, okay? Or you can stick them in a functional MRI and show them a picture of uh, their significant other. And uh, they may have a feeling of romantic love. And it will, uh, these areas of the brain will light up, okay? Some major limitations to that, which we can discuss, okay? So we have these correlations in neuroscience, but what should we make of the correlations between 
mental states and brain states. Is everything essential to being a human being localized to the brain? In a sense, are we just our brains? Uh, Descartes said that mental states reside with an immaterial substance, a soul or a mind, which to me, it seems like those things to him are synonymous, like that the soul is a thinking thing and uh, really is just a mind. But entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity, which is Occam's razor. So say, for example, you're riding your bike around campus, you're wearing a helmet, you fall, you hit your head. And, uh, you know, someone said, how did you not sustain any injuries? I saw you fall. I said, well, I had a, I had a helmet on and, and my guardian angel protected me. Uh, well, uh, they may say that the guardian angel would be superfluous. It what didn't need to be positive. The helmet is a sufficient explanation for why you didn't dis, uh, sustain a brain injury. Uh, but if mental states are explained by the brain, then is the soul superfluous? Uh, Hippocrates certainly thought so. Uh, and this was 2,500 years ago, so you didn't, you didn't need a functional MRI. Men ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arises our pleasures, joys, laughter, and jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, griefs, and tears. Through it, in particular, we think, see, hear, and distinguish the ugly from the beautiful, the bad from the good, the pleasant from the unpleasant. So in other words, you're just your brain. So uh, this leads to a view called physicalism, which is very popular in neuroscience, that the mind is identical to the brain. They're one and the same thing. That humans are purely material. There is no immaterial component to our being. Specifically, there is no immaterial mind or soul. Matter on this view is purely quantitative. It can be measured. It has mass and it takes up space. And when reduced to physical base properties, there is no qualitative components to matter. Okay, so things like odor and taste and color. Last, there's no teleology. There's no goal-directedness. Okay, so um, this leads uh, some to what's called the mind-brain identity theory. Okay, and this is, I think this position is probably dead in philosophy. I don't think people still hold to this but it's very popular in neuroscience, so I wanted to discuss it, okay? So this is the belief that a mental state is identical to a brain state. So, for example, pain is the firing of C-fibers, okay? So I put my hand on that hot stove, and uh, the C-fibers are activated. Uh, they go through the peripheral nervous system into my central nervous system, and uh, voila, pain. Uh, but notice I didn't say that the C fibers are causing pain. I'm saying that the C fibers is pain, okay? That they're literally the same thing. So what does it mean for two things to be identical? I mean numerical uh, identity. If A is identical to B, then any property that A has will also be a property that B has and vice versa. So A and B are really the same thing. So let me uh, simplify that, give some examples. So uh, Clark Kent has all the same properties as Superman. Therefore, Clark Kent is Superman. Don't let the glasses fool you. One and the same, okay? Um, to give a real life example, uh, let's see, uh, Puffy has all the same properties as Puff Daddy, who has all the same properties as P. Diddy, who has all the same properties as Diddy, who has all the same properties as Sean John Combs, who has all the same properties as Sean Love Combs, uh, these six different names all refer to the same very talented rapper, okay? <laughs> all right? So we're using different names to describe the same thing, okay? But if we can find anything that is true about a mental state that is not true of a brain state, then the theory is wrong, okay? And I think we can. So um, let's say one of you come to, to this talk, and you didn't expect, you didn't expect this, but... Um, you're looking across the room and uh, your eyes uh, met a lady or, you know, and uh, you just, you fell in love. And me being a neuroscientist and trying to find some research opportunities, uh, I approach you and I say, hey, I noticed, uh, you know, you looking at this girl and I'm, I'm, wanting, I'm wanting to conduct a study if you would let me. <laughs> I would like to um, put you in a functional MRI. And I'd like to show you a picture of this girl and see what areas of your brain light up, 
okay? And I know this is gonna sound a little bizarre, but a team of neurosurgeons are going to cut that area out of your brain, okay? I know that sounds scary, but neuroplasticity will all work itself out, you'll be fine. Um, so I scan them and uh, they look at the picture of this uh, girl and you know the, the light reflects off the image and the retinal ganglion cells uh, start going and they send signals that caudate nucleus is lighting up and the anterior cingulate gyrus and the putamen, the insula, and for some reason the cerebellum, we're not sure why, uh, but we cut it out. And uh, I put it on a table right here. Okay, and Justin walks by and Justin says, hey, Dr. LaPena, what's that? And I say, Justin, that's love. <laughs> I think we would see here that uh, the essence of what's on the table, this neural tissue, is very different than the essence of love, right? And if they're different, they can't possibly be identical. So if we think about the properties of neural tissue, there is mass and length and width. They conduct electrical activity located in space. So... Um, you know, neurons can be to the right or to the left of other neurons on top of, behind, anterior, posterior, things like that, right? Uh, but what about love? Does love have a length or a width? If you're a poet, it does, but in reality, I'm not quite sure. Uh, does love conduct electrical activity? Is it located in space? Is it to the right or to the left of a different thing? Is it to the right or to the left of uh, hatred? Uh, no, it doesn't seem to be. Love is directed outward. Okay, but is my cell phone, physical object, directed outward? Is it directed to something else? Not like love. Love is directed to another object, another person, or another thing. Uh, also, you know, we say, yeah, you know, you can't be in love. You just met this girl, right? Uh, but no, you say, no, no, it's true. I'm, I'm really in love. But can a physical object like a neuron be true or false? Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like it, right? So it seems like the properties are different. And then in philosophy, there's this thing called multiple realizability. And um, so this uh, theory is making these things called bridge laws. And uh, you're saying that pain is a C-fiber firing in all possible situations. But dogs can be in pain. Dogs don't have C-fibers. Therefore, strictly speaking, pain is not identical to a C-fiber, okay? Uh, it may be identical to some physical thing that's species specific, but that's not what identity theory is trying to claim, okay? All right, so there are other forms of physicalism as well. I obviously don't have time to go into these things, nor the expertise. Uh, behaviorism, functionalism, eliminative materialism. Uh, and then there are arguments against physicalism, all forms of physicalism. So people have subjective, qualitative, and intentional properties. And matter does not have these properties. Therefore, person cannot be purely material. So I may have time to maybe give uh, one example that's, um, I think, fairly uh, fun to talk about. So uh, Frank Jackson came up with this uh, thought experiment where there's this uh, neuroscientist. Her name is Mary. She's, she's fictional, but she's brilliant. And um, she spends her whole life in a black and white room. Okay, everything's black and white. She's never seen color before. And she's a neuroscientist. She studies her whole life. She just studies uh, vision. Okay, so she knows like every little thing about vision. She knows, um, you know, how the retinal ganglion cells and, and how the photoreceptors and bipolar cells, how all those things interact with each other. She knows that the retinal ganglion cells form the optic nerve and the signals cross of the optic chiasm and form the optic tracts, which go to the lateral geniculate nucleus and then go to the superior and inferior optic radiations and make their way back to the primary visual cortex and then go through the dorsal and ventral streams and all. She knows every single physical fact about vision. But then one day, Mary is uh, released from the room and she sees a red fire truck going by and... Um, she, uh, she sees the red fire truck. And the question is, did Mary learn something new? She already knew everything about vision. She knew everything about what, what physio physiological things that occur when, when, uh, when someone sees red. But now she's experienced it. Has she learned something new? If she has, then uh, Frank Jackson argues that there must be something over and above the physical that can't itself be physical. Um, I don't know if that's a good argument or not, but that's just one example. Uh, the other thing is that correlation does not imply identity. So we know that high blood pressure is correlated with stroke, 
But that does not mean that high blood pressure is a stroke. High blood pressure causes stroke. Neuroscience cannot differentiate between mental states being identical to brain states or brain states being uh, the cause of mental states. It cannot do that. Neuroscientists will continue to find correlations between mental states and brain states, but identity can never be established if the properties are different. So this leads some to think that the mind is generated by the brain. So the brain produces the mind. So uh, one of these views is epiphenomenalism. So the mind is uh, a causally inert byproduct of the brain. So if you think about it this way, I drive a, a, an old car. And um, when I start the engine, the belts always squeak, right? I think my timing belt is about to go. So it starts, it starts emitting this sound, right? But that sound in turn has no effect on my car, okay? It's an epiphenomenon, so it's a byproduct, but it in turn has no effect on my car. Uh, it just like annoys the physicians in the physician's parking lot. So it's like, why doesn't that guy get a new car? Um, and then sometimes if I haven't started it for a while, because I usually ride my bike to work. So um, if I haven't started in a while, a little puff of smoke will come out the back, okay? So this little puff of smoke is epiphenomenon from the car in turn has no effect on the car, it just uh, pollutes the atmosphere, okay? Um, but this seems to be false, right? So if you think of, if you really think that these mental states are real and they're epiphenomenal and they, and they don't have any effect, well, people have these psychosomatic disorders where they have anxiety or they have depression and that actually causes physical symptoms in the body, okay? And what we do is we send those folks to cognitive behavioral therapy and as they do these mental exercises, neuroplasticity uh, will start you know, playing a role and their brain will start changing. So it seems very obvious that the mental does have uh, an impact on the physical if you're to take these things seriously. Uh, and then there's another view called emergentism. So when the brain reaches a certain level of complexity and the brain's very complex, it's 86 billion neurons. Um, so when it reaches a new level of complexity, a new entity arises or things with new properties. On this view, emergent properties, or maybe even a whole new substance, uh, has causal roles. But this seems difficult too. How does the electro electrical chemical stuff give rise to mentality and to consciousness? This is a so-called hard problem of consciousness, which was uh, posited by uh, David Chalmers. So that the movement of matter can manifest mentality is the magical miracle that makes materialism a sect, not a science, uh, which is something that Peter Hofstede, who's a philosopher in Europe, um, and then if it is produced, how does the mind then have an effect on the brain? So these things are very complex. So uh, maybe Cartesian dualism is the answer here, uh, substance dualism, okay? So the mind and brain are two distinct substances that interact with each other. And uh, so there have been some people who hold this view, so like uh, Wilder Penfield would be an example. We talked about him, he's a neurosurgeon that did the craniotomy. Uh, he realized that, uh, and, and Father Anselm said this, but when he took the skull off of, of folks uh, and he stimulated certain parts of the brain, he could never produce a belief. And, um, you know, the person would say, yeah, you moved my arm or you moved my legs. You know, I didn't do it. And he could never stimulate the intellect. And there's no th such thing as like an intellectual seizure, right? So you just like can't stop doing arithmetic or something. So... Um, so he thought that these things must be immaterial. He couldn't find them in the brain. He couldn't, he couldn't um, stimulate them. That may not be, it may not be a good argument though. Um, John Eccles and uh, Charles uh, Sherrington, both of them won Nobel prizes uh, in neurophysiology, both were Cartesian dualists. And they have substance dualism, which is related to Cartesian dualism. And there are, there are a bunch of philosophers like William Lane Craig, um, Alvin Plantinga, things like that, who, um, who hold to substance dualism, okay? So uh, some, some smart folks have held this view. But how is it that an immaterial, non-extended mind interacts with an extended body comprised of matter? Okay, so we think of things interacting in the world through physical forces, but how can something immaterial and material interact? It seems impossible. Uh, and this is the interaction problem that's troubled dualism for over 300 years. Okay, uh, when, when Descartes wrote the Meditations, I think it was in 1641, 
1643, Princess Elizabeth wrote back to him talking about this, saying, how is this possible? This doesn't seem like it's possible that these two things could interact. Um, some have posited like a bunch of different, like Alvin Plantinga has talked about this, uh, William Lane Craig has talked about this, and, and they do think that there could potentially be some solutions, and there's all sorts of different ways of thinking about this, but, you know, not going to get into that. And then some have posited what's called parallelism or occasionalism as potential solutions to this, okay? Um, so it seems to be a problem with just about every view that I, that I mentioned, um, not that I can talk about them in an exhaustive sense, but if we make a reflection on these functional MRIs, so maybe we can pause and, and make a reflection. So what are these functional MRIs showing us, right? So if I was to, you know, find someone on the street and say, hey, do you think that when we're thinking that the brain is doing something, I would assume that they would say yes, right? That seems very obvious, and that's what functional MRIs are showing us. You add a layer to that, that when we're doing particular things or having certain thoughts or certain actions, there might be a particular area of the brain lighting up. Is that surprising to everyone, any, anyone either? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's very surprising at all. Uh, and there's many different ways to interpret this data. So a physicalist would say, yeah, of course, you know, well, all there is is the brain. So that, that's all we're going to see that's lighting up. Uh, Cartesian dualist would say, no, 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 no. The, the mind uh, or the brain uses the mind like a pianist uses a piano to play music. So it's just an instrument for thinking. Um, an idealist who just believes that immaterial things exist may say, well, all you know, these material things are just a projection of the immaterial, and this is just a really good example of um, you know, a projection of the immaterial on these uh, brain maps. Okay? So you have all these different views. The mind or the brain is identical to the mind, the brain generates the mind, the mind and brain are two separate substances interacting, the brain and mind run in parallel but do not interact. There's all these different views. But you know, it's important to note that science, for the most part, it when it finds correlations, those correlations raise questions rather than providing answers a lot of the time. And then the interpretation of those things is a philosophical endeavor, okay? So philosophically though, it's very hard, uh, very difficult to reduce the mind to the brain and say they're identical because the properties of matter and the properties of the mind are so different. The same problem also shows up when we try to explain how the brain can produce something radically different than itself. And because of the radical differences between mind and matter, it is hard to see how, if they both exist, they could interact. And this is a, kind of the mind-body problem, right? Um, but what if we think of the natural world differently? Perhaps things of nature are not just quantitative particles and motion governed by physical laws. Maybe there's more than that. So if you look to um, a more ancient uh, way of thinking, uh, if you look to Aristotelian metaphysics, um, I think maybe the easiest way to introduce Aristotle's metaphysics is to talk about the four causes. So if you think about something like uh, this table right here, um, it has four different causes, four different aspects. So there's the material cause, and that's like what the thing is made out of. So this is uh, made out of wood, okay? Uh, it has a formal cause, which is the structure, shape, and organization of a thing. So the table is rectangular. Uh, I was gonna say it has four legs, but this actually only has two legs. And it has a flat surface, okay? Uh, and then there's what's called the efficient cause, the thing that brings it about. So a carpenter, uh, may have brought this about. It looks pretty well made. Um, I'm not sure if it was in a factory or if someone did it. Um, and then there's the final cause, which is the purpose of the thing. So, um, so it's to sit at and study uh, or to eat at. Okay, so it's a purpose to the thing. So Aristotle thought that there was this uh, thing called form. Okay, so he thought matter was just a mere abstraction. It, it, matter had to have form. Okay, and form is that which directs organizes and informs and unifies the matter of a thing to make it the thing that it is to become. And then uh, final causality. So he saw that in nature, all things work towards an end. He called this teleology, that there is purpose in nature. 
So if you move to uh, Thomas Aquinas, so uh, for him, the human person is one substance composed of form and matter. So that's very different than um, like Descartes' view of these two substances interacting. For Aquinas, no, there's one substance that comprised of form and matter, hylomorphous. The soul is a particular type of form. It directs, organizes, and forms and unifies the matter of a living thing to become that which it is intended to be. And all living things have souls, plants, animals, and humans. And that qualitative properties and intentionality in humans would be consistent with humans having form and displaying final causality. The soul, on his view, is not a separate immaterial substance inexplicably interacting with a material body like with Descartes. It's not a byproduct of the brain like an epiphenomenalism. It's not an emergent entity arising from the complexity of the brain. It's rather the first principle of life and those things which live. And for Aquinas, what separates, so, you know, the, the soul is the form of the body and plants have souls and, you know, trees and animals, but humans are unique in that they have a rational soul. We have the capacity to reason and we have the capacity for, for will and for love. Okay, and he argues, as um, Professor George uh, highlighted, that the intellect and the will are immaterial. Okay, and that um, to go a step further, Aquinas believed that we, in having these capacities, that we're substantially or ontologically created in the image of God. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm a physician, I'm not a metaphysician, so I'll let you guys determine if those, if that's good philosophy or not, I'm not quite sure, but um, uh, I'll let you guys determine that. But I, I'll maybe speak uh, from the standpoint of a physician, okay? So this is a picture of me during the pandemic. Um, so, and this is a physician, the other guy there, that's a physician during the bubonic plague, okay? So that's uh, around 1350, it's like 800 years ago or so. And... Um, you kind of see there's not like a huge difference, right? Um, so like, it's pretty similar. Um, it's, it's not a difference in kind. It's just a difference in, in degree, maybe. Um, he has the wand. I don't know what that's for. But um, yeah, but I think it's pretty similar. You know, pandemics. So I've been, you know, working through this pandemic and, um, you know, it's terrible. I think this it's, it's awful. You know, when I when I became a doctor, I said, you know, I, I, I want to be a different type of doctor. Um, I want to be a different type of physician. Uh, I want to care for the whole person. So let's say I see someone in my clinic and they have epilepsy. And um, I give them levetiracetam, which is an anti-seizure medication. And uh, they're seizure-free, but they come to visit me and they're deeply depressed and they're having an existential crisis. They don't see meaning in life anymore. Then I say, yeah, but are you seizure-free? I say, yeah, okay, well, here's your medicine. I'll, you'll see you in six months. Would I be a good doctor? No, I'd, I'd be a terrible doctor, right? That would, that would not, I would not be a good physician if I were to care for my patients that way. Uh, so I always want to be a, yeah, a different type of a doctor. And I think the pandemic's been like really terrible, but I think it's, it has helped me become a much better doctor. So it's exhausting, right? So we, you gotta wear this, that mask up there. You know, I'm seeing like COVID patients all day, at least during the two peaks of the pandemic. And you get this Honeywell mask on, just like really digging into your face the whole day. And uh, by the end of the day, you have all these bruises and red marks all over your face. Uh, and then people are just like really burnt out. You're seeing people dying all day. Um, so it's a really, it's been a very difficult um, time. But uh, it's nothing compared to what the patients are going through, right? So these patients are um, locked in these rooms. They can't have visitors. Um, they're kind of semi-conscious a lot of the time, or they're in ventilators. Uh, so they're like suffering, you know, just uh, really suffering, uh, much more so than, than we as providers are, are suffering. Uh, I think of this like one 90-year-old uh, woman that I saw. She was uh, in status epilepticus. She was uh, seizing uh, probably for like three days or so before I was consulting, but she was in subclinical status epilepticus. So the body wasn't shaking. She was seizing, but just the brain, the body wasn't doing anything. So no one knew, but she wasn't waking up. So they consulted me. 
So I came in, I, I hooked her up to EEG and, and sure enough, she was seizing. I gave her some medicines. I got her out of the seizure. Um, but now, um, yeah, she's like a little bit more awake, a little bit more alert, but she's just moaning. So all I did was like make this person, I gave him some level of consciousness back, right? But now they're just suffering. And uh, so I leave the room. I have my all my stuff on and I just kind of, you know, thinking about this lady and how like, you know, the, all the pillars of Western, uh, you know, medicine are kind of collapsing for this lady, right? She's going to die. And so I get out of the room and I say, you know, okay, I got, I got to be a physician here. I can't heal her physically. She's not going to make it. So, so what can I do? So, you know, I took my PPE off. I put more simple PPE on, or, you know, just simple mask and some eye protection. And I went back in and I sat by her bedside and I spent time with her and, um, I held her hand and, um, so I, pray, I put my hand on her on her head and I prayed over her. And then when patients are in this state, I always do tactile things so that they know I'm there in case they can't process things. So I did the sign of the cross on her forehead and, um, you know, prayed. And I opened up my eyes and she's staring right at me and she's just wide awake. And um, so, I, you know, it really took me off guard. But she's so weak that she can't talk. So she keeps trying to like voice something to me. But I just can't understand what she's saying. So um, I, through yes and no, I, I find out what her favorite TV show is, uh, Days of Our Lives. So I put it up on the TV. And um, so I say, okay, you know, she's just trying so hard to tell me something. So I say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I got to go see more patients. Um, so I'm walking out. And then as clear as day, I hear, thank you. And uh, it's just, it just blew my mind. I, I you know, I got out of the room. I reflected on this. I said, you know, what is the human person? Can we, re can we reduce this person to her brain? Is she just her brain? No, no, no. She has a brain. You, you know, can we reduce her to her mind? Is a person essentially just their mind? No, she has a mind. You can't be one of your parts. You can't be something that you possess, okay? The human person is irreducible, okay? They're irreducible, okay? Um, the other thing was, even in the end of life, this woman who's dying, somehow she still has equality in, in the sense of dignity, right? I ought to treat her with the same amount of dignity that I treat any of you who are in the prime of your life, okay? But why, you know, why is this? Like, I think a lot of you guys, you know, I, I think you guys believe, like, your, I think your generation is, when I work with the students, my medical students, I think they see this maybe more than any generation, that regardless of race, gender, um, you know, regardless of wealth, uh, whatever, social status, um, whether you're at Yale or a community college or, or whatever, um, there is this equality that we all share. But what I ask my students who, who really deeply feel this is, okay, I agree with you. Yes, like we're all equal. But what is it that like, what's the foundation of that? Like what, what gives you that belief? What gives you that confidence that these people are, are all equal? Can materialism give you that belief that we're purely quantitative beings that were uh, made of atoms and arranged in a particular way. No, I mean, no two people have the same amount of atoms. I mean, by definition, we wouldn't be equal. It's like, what is it that gives us equality? Okay. Uh, I just don't think you can get there from a materialistic worldview. But I think uh, Aristotle, I think Thomas Aquinas, I think they really offer something here. Okay. They see the world as full of purpose. They see that people have a human soul and that they're irreducible, okay? And that we have the capacity to seek truth and love. Uh, this idea that we have, we have souls, okay? And is that a sufficient grounds for seeing equality amongst people? I think that it is. Because I think as, as Aquinas and others pointed out that in having a soul, uh, and having these capacities of intellect and will, we're created in the image of God. And that gives, that makes the person irreducible. It gives them equality. Okay. Um, I think I'll end it there.
Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm curious because, uh, so last year the, the Tennessee Institute hosted um, a very interesting lecture on like the God of the gaps, right? It's sort of theory. That yeah, sure. Started, like, you know, the only reason we have God is just because, you know, science can't yet explain. The right. Yeah, that's certainly not true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, I'm curious, like, what would you say, I mean, what, what would you say to like an objection that was posed to you about that, right? That like, the only reason, the only reason we can't sort of localize these things, the only reason why we can't, um, you know, understand why the brain works in the way it does and why we observe sort of, and why, why we feel the emotions we feel and sort of come to these conclusions that we come to is simply because we don't know enough yet. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a way we can sort of say, well, we'll like, is there a way we can we can not only conclude well we don't we don't know yet based on the information we have about x y or z but, but rather like no, actually we really don't know yeah yeah so is it like in principle yeah um so this is not like yeah so there's god in the gaps and then there's like soul in the gaps mm -hmm. right neuroscience hasn't explained it therefore let's posit a soul uh no so the answer to that is is no um and you know, I don't know, maybe on a Cartesian, like, dualist perspective, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it's falsifiable, but it depends, like, on your metaphysics, right, so, um, I, I, maybe I'll even back up a little bit, so, if you take a mechanistic view of nature, that things are purely quantitative, and they have no qualitative aspects, and if things don't, are not goal-directed, they don't, um, act towards an end, but human beings do, so human beings do have qualitative components and we have intentionality. Um, well, if, if the human, I mean, there'd be a conflict, right? Because if uh, you're saying humans are totally material, but they display properties and uh, aspects that material objects in principle don't have, then it can't be material. So I don't think in principle neuroscience is ever going to be able to solve the mind-body problem. I think it's just, it, they just can't do it in principle. So, you know, I would say that we're not waiting on a neuroscientific discovery. And like 50, you may say like, oh, in 50 or 100 years, like the neuroscientists are going to figure this out. No, it's like if you define matter as how you've defined it and you take a mechanistic uh, worldview or whatever, it guarantees that we're not going to find it in neuroscience. I think the other problem is that neuroscience is going to be showing you correlations, right? But then correlations raise questions. Okay, uh, are, are A and B identical? Does neuroscience, can neuroscience show you that identity that is numerically identical? I would say no. Um, okay, then does A cause B or does B cause C? Again, I think you're going to get into uh, philosophical discussions on this. So in principle, I, I don't think neuroscience can get you there. Which could have just been like, that could have been my talk. Just that like little spiel and that'd be it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I have a question and maybe this uh, relates to the Cartesian uh, line of inquiry. It's about dreams. Oh boy, um, yeah. Yeah, so in some sense we're always kind of like we, we're dreaming with our eyes open right now, right? Because the visual uh, hallucination of having only corresponds very loosely with the actual information that's coming through my eyes, for instance. Um, I mean, you know, this is a basic matter, like there would be black holes right here, right? Uh, if, if I were seeing the world for what it is. So we're sort of always I see. You know, hallucinating the world that we uh, perceive. Um, and so I, maybe it's not such a stretch uh, to connect like our waking reality with kind of dreams. So in dreams, right? It's sort of like random noise generates, uh, or is like the substrate of our experience. Sure. Um, and there, so it's kind of random, but it feels as though, um, you know, there is a mental component, right, that's interacting um, and yeah. just kind of engaging. Um, that's how, it, at least for some people, it feels to dream. Yeah. But I, I think most of us would describe the dream state as kind of epiphenomenal. Right? So yeah, sure. your brain is doing something and then it kind of appears as though your mind is going along, but sure. you're, you're not like freely choosing. It's, it's, it's really scripted, right? In a, yeah. In a strict sense. Um, so 
if if dreams are kind of epiphenomenal in the sense, and the, the the same kind of process is happening during our waking life, it's just instead of random noise, we're getting real sensory information as a substrate. Um, does this suggest that what appears to be kind of mental agency in waking life is kind of railroaded in the same way that our dreams are? Like we feel like we have agency in dreams, but we might act in ways that we would never endorse uh, in our waking life. So is it like, am I a different person when I'm dreaming, or are both senses of agency kind of illusory? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's that's a difficult question. Yeah, it kind of seems, uh, so I'm obviously like not a Cartesian dualist. Um, so it seems like when we talk about that, we're maybe talking about two different substances, uh, the mind or like the body and the mind and things like that. But I don't know how to think about that through that particular frame of mind. But I think from a, like a Thomistic standpoint, uh, perhaps, and, and the philosophers can correct me if I'm wrong, but so the 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 uh, soul is that which informs the body. So like the matter, the matter of the brain is um, like never just operating independently of the soul because like matter can exist apart from um, form and the form of the human person is the soul. So when we're dreaming or in a wakefulness or whatever, like the potentials of the matter are actualized by our form. I don't really know how to distinguish like philosophically between like dreaming in the awake state. I think maybe I'd have to defer to one of our philosophers here on how that works. I'm not quite sure. Yep. Um, I, I wish I had taken a note at the exact slide, but um, you were articulating the Aristotelian and Thomistic conception of the soul yeah. and contrasting it with the purely spiritual conception of the Cartesians. Yeah. My only question, though, is, is if the soul is so much closer linked to our material, our material form, yeah. how it continues to have existence after uh, we die. Yeah, uh, God sustains it in being. So just like he sustains me in being now, uh, so he would sustain the soul in existence. I don't think it has like, and, and they can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I don't think like it has the natural ability by itself to stay in existence apart from the body, but that God sustains the soul in existence. Sure. Um, thank you so much for your one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately um, is the sort of implications of um, the very sacramental worldview um, implicit in Catholicism. Um, and I guess I, I wonder, because on your Cartesian Buddhism slides, um, you sort of mentioned um, this like mind-body, or sorry, the, um, the problem of an immaterial uh, interacting with the material. Yes. Um, which, to an extent, um, we see, uh, we see a lot of uh, yeah. in the faith tradition. So I wonder, um, like, where, where do you see like the uh, the tradition of sacramentality from a Catholic and Christian perspective more largely, like informing this question of the mind and the soul? Uh, that would be a great question for uh, Father Anselm. I think <laughs> um, much more so than it would be for me. Uh, you know, I, I'm. Not totally, you know, sure on that. I think that would be a better question for a theologian than it would be for me. But yeah, so it does raise a question, though. I, I do agree. So, like, there's this interaction problem. But so, if there's an interaction problem between um, the mind and the body on a Cartesian standpoint, well, God is immaterial, and His creation is material for the most part. So, how then does uh, God, who's immaterial, interact with something that seems so different than himself. So it seems like maybe it raises the question to a higher level. Uh, I don't know the philosophical, like, you know, argument for that. Um, I know that on the Cartesian standpoint, yeah, like guys like Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig and others put forward many different ideas on how to solve this interaction problem. Um, 
And, you know, I have read those. Uh, I can't say that, you know, I, you know, feel like people evoke quantum mechanics for everything. Um, <laughs> so there's a couple of different ideas through quantum mechanics that they use. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure, though. It's the theological things and the sacraments and things like the Eucharist and all of this. Uh, I just believe by faith there may well be good reasons for it, but uh, there probably are. But it's past my, uh, it's uh, beyond my intellectual uh, capacities. Um, well, thank you very yeah, much, thanks. Dr. Lacanac.